Okay, let's begin with a word of prayer. Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open to us the wonders of your word this morning. As we consider the doctrine of election, help us to understand what you have written, and more importantly, to believe what you have written. These things we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Father, one God, now and forever. Amen. Hey, you're getting there. <laughs> I was a little weak this morning in the uh, early service, but then I, then I, I kind of determined you're a little weak anyway at that hour of the morning. So, you know, even if you're an early riser, it's still sort of quiet time. Uh, so anyway, uh, okay, he's turning my volume up so I won't have to shout. Then I'll drive him out of here, right? Then he'll squeal and you'll all head for the exit. Okay, uh, the last time, uh, two weeks ago, <coughs> excuse me, we were considering the doctrine of election. And I don't want to go back over the passages that we already have surveyed, but um, I had given you a definition that came from Franz Pieper's Christian Dogmatics. And that was the eternal act of God by which from eternity, out of pure grace for Christ's sake, God has decreed to bestow those blessings on the Christians which through his call they now enjoy, conversion, justification, sanctification, and preservation in faith. And uh, what we're going to get into today are words from the Lutheran Confessions, and then we will get back to some Bible passages, but um, it's rather interesting that in the, uh, the formula of Concord, which uh, comes about uh, as the last confessional document uh, in the Book of Concord, maybe you're looking at different colored ones in your church library, it's very probable. This one is this one is the old one. Well, not actually the older one. The older one was the Triglata. Have any of you ever seen the Triglata? Triglot, three languages. It has the German, the Latin, and the English, and it was done for the what would that have been? 1917 would have been what? Four? No. 400 years. Yeah, this is was 1517 or 2017, we celebrated the 500th anniversary, uh, that was published, and then that was a very unwieldy book, and I don't know if Pastor Allman had to carry that one to class in his seminary days, but, you know, <laughs> we tried to avoid it because it was so big and so heavy, and then, then there was this one, the Tappert edition, which, which is much more manageable. But at any rate, uh, in this document, uh, I'm going to read just the the kind of the opening part of this, <clears throat> because this is, I think, kind of an interesting thing. On uh, this article, Eternal Foreknowledge and Divine Election, there has been no public scandalous and widespread dissension among, the, among theologians of the Augsburg Confession concerning the eternal election of the children of God. Great. Nevertheless, this article has become the occasion of very serious controversies at other places and has involved our people also. 
And uh, this uh, was uh, obviously with the Calvinists at Strasbourg. Uh, nor have our theologians always used the same terms. Therefore, in order by God's grace to prevent, as far as we can, disunity and schism in this article among our posterity, we have determined to set forth our explanation of this article in this document so that all men may know what we teach, believe, and confess in this article. So, this is a preemptive strike because they realize this is going to come up. This is going to happen because we're already, we're already seeing parts of this. This is going to come up because of the Calvinists. They are going to be on the edges of this, and then it's going to be fully in the living room. So they write this article, Article 11 of the formula, and um, I want to read part of that, so um, we're going to do some of that today. So if we want to speak or think correctly and profitably about this doctrine and about the predestination and ordering of the children of God to eternal life, we should accustom ourselves not to speculate concerning the absolute, secret, hidden, and inscrutable foreknowledge of God. On the contrary, we should consider the counsel, purpose, and ordinance of God in Christ Jesus, who is the genuine and true book of life as it is revealed to us through the Word. This means that we must always take as one unit the entire doctrine of God's purpose, counsel, will, and ordinance concerning our redemption, call, justification, and salvation, as Paul treats and explains this article, Romans 8, 28, following, and Ephesians 1, 4, following, and as Christ likewise does in the parable, Matthew 22 to 14, namely, that in his purpose and counsel, God had ordained the following. I don't know if you want to look at any of those passages just to have them open before you, but maybe the Matthew 20, since we are probably a little more accustomed to looking at what Paul has written. But the Matthew 20, this is the laborers in the vineyard parable, Matthew 20. Uh, confessions are saying, okay, 2 to 14. We're not going to read all of that one, but you perhaps are familiar with the laborers in the vineyard, you know, the, the uh, uh, agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day sends them out, and then people come at later times during the day, and then it comes payday at the end of the day, and they all get the same wage, and um, the workers uh, complain. Uh, they, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. And so we see that this really has nothing whatsoever to do with merit. It has only to do with the grace of God. Uh, and, and that must be kept in mind when we consider 
predestination or election is really the better preferred term. Okay, so first point, <clears throat> that through Christ the human race has truly been redeemed and reconciled with God, and that by his innocent obedience, suffering, and death, Christ has earned for us, quote, the righteousness which avails before God, end quote, and eternal life. Uh, this really is what we would call the doctrine of objective justification. Christ died for the sins of the whole world, period. Uh, whether or not some believe is another thing, and that gets, that touches on this. But first of all, Christ died for the whole world, not just for the elect. Uh, otherwise, we'll get back into that. Otherwise, we're going to be Calvinists. Because then, you, then you'll want to know, well, am I among the elect? <laughs> and then you're speculating on that, which you can't know. So, the human race has truly been redeemed and reconciled by Christ. Number two, that this merit and these benefits of Christ are to be offered, given, and distributed to us through His Word and sacraments. And you may remember that uh, um, what Pieper told us is that any discussion must be in the context of word and sacrament. You cannot, you must not discuss this apart from this righteousness which is offered, given, and distributed through his word and sacraments. Three, that he would be effective and active in us by his Holy Spirit through the word when it is preached, heard, and meditated on, would convert hearts to true repentance and would enlighten them in the true faith. Four, that he would justify and graciously accept into the adoption of children and into the inheritance of eternal life all who in sincere repentance and true faith accept Christ. Uh, in other words, we are talking here about a confession of the Christian faith which is made in holy baptism. All right, when you recall the rite of holy baptism... There is always the confession of faith. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? I do. And isn't it interesting that the infant does not answer for himself, but he has godparents who answer, who confess the faith of the church into which this child is being baptized, showing us again that this is purely by the grace of God and by the work of the Holy Spirit who creates this faith without our cooperation. Okay, so there is that confession of faith in the sacrament of holy baptism. Uh, five, <clears throat> that he also would sanctify in love all who are thus justified, as St. Paul says, Ephesians 1.4. Okay, we can look at that one. Ephesians 1.4. 
I'll start at 3. Blessed, actually, this starting at verse 3 goes all the way through 11. I think I may have mentioned this when we looked at this passage last time. That's all one sentence in the Greek. Just, it's, it's like German. You know, Germans have sentences that run on forever. Anyway, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. You were chosen by God before the creation of the world to be His. That's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. God chose you from eternity to be His. And what we're going to find out is that God causes all of this to happen. And um, then people have all sorts of other questions there, but we're, we're going to find out why we can't go beyond some of that. So that He would also sanctify and love all those who are thus justified. Six, that He would that he also would protect them in their great weakness against the devil, the world, and the flesh, guide and lead them in his ways, raise them up again when they stumble, and comfort and preserve them in tribulation and temptation. So it's not a smooth path than through life. Uh, and there may be even times where we're we might wonder about that. and saying, well, this person seems to have fallen from faith, but uh, that's the, the beauty of holy baptism. You can again come back. Uh, God does not shut the door, but uh, He will bring you to your salvation. Uh, seven, that he would also strengthen and increase in them the good work which he has begun and preserve them unto the end. If they cling to God's word, pray diligently, persevere in the grace of God, and use faithfully the gifts they have received. So here again is this connection of word and sacrament, that it's always in this context of word and sacrament. Um, St. Paul writes that um, God will bring this good work to completion. God will bring it to completion, not you. God will bring it to completion. And in there we have to say, obviously, though, you have to use word and sacrament. You can't say, well, I'm, you know, I'm good to go, it's guaranteed, got my ticket punched, and you can't throw me off of the plane. Well, as you know, you can have a ticket and still get kicked off of the plane. Uh, you say, but I have a ticket. Well, that's too bad. Uh, so in other words, there are circumstances that must be taken into consideration with this, and that is that you are kept in grace by the Spirit's tools, word and sacrament. You just can't say it doesn't matter because I'm, I'm good to go, I don't have to do anything else. And I'm not saying that in a way that you are earning something, but that it's, 
if you want to be connected, it's sort of like um, you have to have your light connected to an outlet. It has to have power. If you cut off the power, it isn't going to work. And so this is all about being connected to the power that's going to make this happen, and that's the Holy Spirit. Uh, eight, that finally he would eternally save and glorify in eternal life those whom he has elected, called, and justified. In this, his eternal counsel, purpose, and ordinance, God has not only prepared salvation in general, but he has also graciously considered and elected to salvation each and every individual among the elect who are to be saved through Christ, and also ordained that in the manner just recounted, he wills by his grace, gifts, and effective working to bring them to salvation and to help further strengthen and preserve them to the end. According to the scriptures, all this is included in the teaching of the eternal election of God to adoption and to eternal salvation. It should be understood as included therein and never be excluded or omitted when we speak of the purpose, foreknowledge, election, and ordinance of God to eternal salvation. When we follow the scriptures and organize our thinking about this article in this light, we can, by the grace of God, easily orient ourselves in it. Okay, that's kind of a summary um, statement here. Uh, let me pause for any questions that you might have at that point. I know, I know I'm just reading from a document, but it's important that we, we hear all of it. Pastor Grady. Ephesians 1 4 that we were looking at? It's in the New Testament. I'm just. Yeah, I guess there's that, there's that story that uh, those of you who uh, went to the Fort Wayne Seminary, the stories of David Scare are legend, Professor David Scare, and he, he says, you know, he's just looking for something. He says, someday I've got to learn the order of these books. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're going to get into foreknowledge now and election. And uh, this is where it gets a little sticky for some people. All right, the confessions again. Election is not identical to God's foreknowledge. And this is the point on which those who follow Calvin get mixed up and which many Christians have troubled themselves with spiritual doubts and a lot of agony because they get it mixed up. So, again... Uh, Article 11 clarifies, at the very outset, we must carefully note the difference between God's eternal foreknowledge and the election of His children to eternal salvation. <clears throat> 
For the fact that God sees and knows everything before it happens, what we call God's foreknowledge extends to all creatures, good and evil. He sees and knows in advance all that is or shall be, all that happens or will happen, both good and evil, since all things present or future are manifest and present to God as it is written, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground without your Father's will. Again, uh, and this, that was from uh, Matthew 10.29. This is from Psalm 139. Thine eyes beheld my unformed substance. In thy book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Let me read that one again, because that's, that's the old King James. Uh, I guess I could read it for you from... And I realize we've got different... Uh, you all use this NIV... which is different than what I've been reading to you or using with you. If you open your Bibles in the service and I'm quoting something, you say, what's he reading? It's from the ESV, which is the updated RSV. I, I don't want to confuse you with all that, but it's, uh, you understand what I'm saying. Uh, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Then it goes on, and this is not in the article, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! In other words, this all really is in, in what I like to say the mystery of God. You know, we're, and what we are trying to penetrate there uh, is quite difficult. You know, we're like, um, since we're speaking of foreknowledge, we are very much like Moses, who when he is out there on the mountain and he asks God to see his glory, God says, no can do, Moses, because if you saw it, you're dead. No human being can see the glory of God, and yet what does God do for him? He puts him in a, cle in, in a cleft in the rock, and then he lets him see his backside. Uh, that's what you and I want. We want to see more than God is going to share with us. And I think that's, that's a sin that we commit. I know I do. I want to see more than what God is letting me see. All He lets us see is the way of the cross. Um, I didn't bring that volume with me this week. I should have brought it to uh, short volume, We Confess Jesus Christ by Hermann Sasse, which is an absolutely marvelous collection of essays. But in there, he, he makes the point that this is 
part of our problem is that we want to peer into these eternal mysteries. We want to see. We want God to show us. And yet, the Scriptures are very clear that it is by faith and not by sight. But you and I want to see. We want reasons why God does this or He does that or why He allows this or why He allows that. And um, there are those times in life when you want that information. You want a reason why God allows someone to suffer or why God allows somebody to get a terminal disease at a young age, a child, and you say, why? It's at that point we're trying to peer into God's foreknowledge. And that's hard. That really is hard to say, well, he's not going to let me see He's just going to show me his backside. And that's as much as we're going to get other than when we look at the full revelation of God in Christ, the God-man. Here's where we see who God is, what God is. So as we hear about Jesus and we read what he does, what he says, that's what we're going to have. And even the disciples, they don't get the whole, you know, in the sermon this morning, I quoted about uh, the mother of James and John who wanted, came to Jesus and asked that they could sit at his right and his left. And part that they didn't read is where Jesus says, uh, that's not given to you <laughs> to know who's going to be there <laughs> on his right and his left in the kingdom of heaven. I doubt that it's either of those two guys. <laughs> because in that whole context, Jesus said it is the one who is the most humble. So who's the most humble? I'm humbler than you. <laughs> That, that simply isn't told us. We aren't going to know. So in this foreknowledge, uh, we, we are not to, um, to try to peer into that. One more passage here is listed from Isaiah 37. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. Well, God knows everything about you, but he doesn't tell you everything. All right, continuing, and then we'll stop, we'll stop for some questions here, or some discussion. And again, God's foreknowledge, I won't give you the Latin, it's to see ahead of time. Sees and knows in advance the evil as well, but not in such a way as though it were God's gracious will that it should happen. To be sure, he sees and knows beforehand whatever the perverse and wicked will of the devil and of men will attempt and do. But even in the wicked act and works, 
but even in wicked acts and works, God's foreknowledge operates in such a way that God sets a limit and measure for the evil which He does not will, but how far it is to go, how long it is to endure, and when and how He will interfere with it and punish it. For the Lord God governs everything in such a way that it must redound to the glory of His divine name and the salvation of His elect, and thereby the ungodly are confounded. The source and cause of evil is not God's foreknowledge. Since God neither creates nor works evil, nor does He help it along and promote it, You know, like fake news. <laughs> but rather the wicked and perverse will of the devil and of men, as it is written, Israel, thou hast plunged thyself into misfortune, but in me alone is thy salvation. Likewise, from Psalm 5, thou art not a God who delights in wickedness. So we cannot accuse God of being the agent of sin. But God knows, He sees it, but He operates in this that He sets a limit and measure for the evil which He does not will but how far it is to go, how long it is to endure. And oftentimes that is the prayer of the saints. O oh Lord, how long? Uh, in Revelation, the saints who... Souls are under the altar. How long, O oh Lord, before you bring this to a close? How long shall this wickedness continue? I mean, I, I'm sure, well, I know it was prayed very often in the 20th century. Uh, when you look at all of the wars, and if, if you are at all a person interested in history, you, you may see the statistics of how many people died in the 20th century due to wars. Not just the Second World War, the First World War, and all the other wars that raged around the world. Untold millions of people. I think it was a figure that I saw recently was 60 million people. And yet we have topped 50 million in legal abortions since Roe v. Wade. Over 50 million. And so we say, how long, O oh Lord? Why do you let this go on? You know, we're saying, what I can see, you, you should stop this. And this is sometimes the argument of people who are unbelievers say, well, if you're... <clears throat> It was in the context of that, um, the shooting in that church down in Texas a few months back. And boy, there were, I, I read some of the comments. You know, if you want to read evil comments, you read this, the comments on some of these stories. There are people who are just, they are just plain evil, hateful people. And saying, well, if your God was so great, why didn't he stop that? And then when the... Uh, the whole matter of, well, there were prayers. Yeah, well, obviously your God didn't answer those prayers. Um, 
And um, that's always a difficult question to answer. Say, well, I don't have a defense. I don't have to defend God for what he does. This is what's called theodicy, that is to judge God, to sit in judgment on God and say, God, if, if you were, or somebody may say, well, my God wouldn't do that. Well, obviously not. You, you have made your own idol, and he's in your image, and therefore that, that God, your God, you've probably heard people say that, well, my God wouldn't do that. Well, I'm sorry, but he's the God that you've made for yourself. Uh, so part of this is we cannot sit in judgment on God as to why he allows this, but we are told there is a limit. But we don't know what that limit is because God isn't letting us see that. We want to look. We want to see. God, come on, can tell me. Just tell me. And he's not going to. Um, So God cannot be the source of damnation. That is not scriptural. Let's look at two passages. Uh, John 13, 18. John, Gospel of John 13, 18. It takes me a while. These pages, you know, are so thin. If you go too fast, you tear them out. John 13, 18. Uh, and this is uh, on Monday, Thursday, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Uh, what does Jesus say about who is chosen? Well, basically, he knows who he has chosen. We don't. God knows those whom he has chosen, but you and I do not know. We will never know. For sure. One more passage, 2 Timothy 2.19 But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The first part of that, the Lord knows those who are His. And I'm going to add one more passage in there. John chapter 10. Um, 27. Uh, starting at 25, uh, 
The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So Jesus knows those whom he has chosen. And no one can take them away from Jesus or the Father. I and the Father are one. They are not working at cross purposes. And then, of course, the very next verse says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. (laughs) Why? Why are they going to stone him? Yeah, he thinks he's God. No, he doesn't think it. He is. Yeah, he's saying, how, how can you say these things? So, but this is uh, a great comfort to us to know that we are chosen by God. We are chosen to be, or we are elected to be one of his sheep. And there's only one vote, and whose vote is it? You all know, God's. He's the only one that has a vote. We don't. So that should be of, uh, of great comfort to you that it is God who does the choosing, and He doesn't do it on the basis of anything about you. That We're going to get into that. You know, this is where the Calvinists will say, well, okay, God, God chose you because he foresaw that you were going to be a good person. Now, you got that all wrong now. You've gotten this thing outside of the context of word and sacrament now. You've made it something else, and it's not that. Okay, let's, I want to open this up for any discussion. I don't mean to cut that short by any means. So anything you want to talk about up to this point... Uh, the next time we're going to be looking at being sure of one's election, and then um, you know, we've, we've got a bit to go yet with this. The, uh, one of the nice things that the confessors always do is they have the um, antitheses, that is the false doctrine concerning this article, they'll list all that, which is nice because it shows you very clearly, okay, these are all the false things. You read that and you see that. So uh, we're going to get into that too, but let me stop for any discussion, questions. And if there is none, then you get another five minutes for whatever. Or for those of you who are going home, you get to go home. Oh, all right. Question. I'm sorry. What does baptism guarantee? He, well, in, in the, uh, it's from Mark's gospel. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. 
So again, you see the context here is the sacraments where God has promised to be and work. And we Lutherans would say, yeah, that's real presence. Whereas uh, people in, um, particularly in the Baptistic denominations, would say that baptism is God's work and your decision to accept God's work. And that adds something that you've done. And we say, no, it is by grace, purely, nothing else. And then there are those who want to say, well, faith is your work. No, faith is still the Holy Spirit's work. So what we do, what we, what we used to do, I'm going to figure this out yet, this thing. Um, in Luther's day, his instructions for the sacrament were that uh, the pastor and the parents, the godparents were with the child, and the congregation, if the congregation was present, they were in the sanctuary praying for this child or this person being baptized. So there was the whole matter of the prayer. Uh, Luther himself uh, was not baptized on a Sunday in front of the congregation. He was born. Anybody remember? Some of you have gone, gone over there on Pastor Feeney's tours. You should remember this. What date was he born? It's November. Huh? 10th. And he was his dad carried him up the street to, I'm pretty sure it's St. Andrew's now, I saw it, and had him baptized. I don't think his mother was there, but his dad and whoever else, and he was named Martin because November 11th was the saint day for St. Martin of Tours, a soldier. And isn't it ironic that uh, we have our Veterans Day, November the 11th? And I'm sure if our atheist friends knew that, they would have a campaign to get rid of that on <laughs> November 11th because they say, well, you can't have that. I say, well, it just happens to be St. Martin of Tours, so he is named Martin. I suppose maybe the priest asked, well, what are you going to name him? Hmm, well, this is St. Martin's. How about Martin? Okay, that's good. <laughs> and so there is, there is Martin. So, okay. That's a good question. That one's going to come up. She said uh, if they were baptized and raised in the faith and then later renounced the faith, were they part of the elect? Uh, can I save that one till we get to that, to that section? It's coming up, but you know, I don't, I don't want to answer that in one minute and then, what's that? Save that one for later. It's a longer answer. Yeah, we'll want to do that. Okay. Well, we are at time, so let's close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Very good. You're getting there with those amens.